0: Hey, yeah, chapter 2. I got a lot to go over. This is exciting. You know, we've been going through the the minor prophets and uh, starting with with Daniel, not so much a minor prophet, but the gateway to prophecy itself. Uh, the book of Daniel, uh, rightly understood, opens the understanding of all the minor prophets regarding the last days. Daniel specifically, we've talked about it talks about a 70 week cul- culmination of uh Human history, 69 of the the weeks when Messiah was cut off. We had a a delay between the 69th week and the 70th week. We know by Scripture, this is all review, and I hope that I'm not going too fast, but we know by Scripture the 69th week was ended when Messiah was cut off. We have the church age, that valley in there, and then we know that the 70th week, must be in the tribulation period for several reasons. We have the prophet Jeremiah, Jesus himself. We have uh, Daniel explaining that there's going to be a seven-year period on this last week of these 70 weeks of years. And it will be divided by, right in the middle, by the first three and a half years commonly to call the tribulation, the last three and a half years, the great tribulation, or, as regarding the Jews, the time of Jacob's trouble and so the prophets have have unfolded like that and uh and we've we've gone through the majority we have uh this prophet zechariah which i'm very much uh getting into i call the prophets uh regarding the last days that daniel and zechariah being kind of like bookends kind of holding them all together daniel unfolding that great in chapter 2 that great uh Revelation, if you will, the answering of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the kingdoms, explaining the Antichrist, explaining the, the the weeks. Do you know that as we've looked uh, in prophecy, that it was prophesied down to the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, and he was hailed as the Messiah. And that was Nisan, A.D. 32. But that was the exact day that was prophesied through the day. And so you get all these detailed prophecies, and you get the bookends of Daniel on one end, unfolding the prophetic view of prophecy, if you will. Then you have Zechariah on the other hand, um, so full of uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is going to happen to this third remnant of the Jewish people that are going to be saved? What's going to happen? We read in the prophecies or in the prophets that there's a rod of cleansing that, that they're going to go through. The chastisement rod of cleansing that God will bring His remnant through, and yet we also see that the remnant will be uh, theocratic. Joe, wherever you're at, (laughs) thank you. These remnant will be part of this theocratic exercise of this kingdom, this thousand-year millennial kingdom. Um, A lot to go over, but it's you know I think that prophecy is is such a a wonderful. Thing today that we that the church is so lacking in um, i was talking to a gentleman the other day and has claimed to be a christian for many years has been in this town for many years and been to different fellowships and whatever and it was so obvious um, he was asking what we were going through and, and what this fellowship was um, all about and what we were you know teaching through the word And it was sad because it was reminiscent of the fact that there's so many people out there, folks, that don't know the Bible, that don't know what prophecy is about, that don't know the Jewish people, the place that the Jews have. Israel has a God's timetable. And for me, the last 20 or so years that I've really been invested in in looking at this, it has opened up the Bible in such a way to me that um, it just made it... Points everything together, you know our, our wonderful verse in uh, Revelation nineteen and ten, where Jesus, you know, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and uh, or as Doctor Barnhouse used to say, Jesus is in every page of the Bible. It's not only our duty but our privilege to find Him there, and as prophecy does. Um, so anyway, I wanted to first of all start out tonight by saying, uh, how do we know that? This Christian faith, as we hear so many people, how do we know that's real? What's the validity to it? You know, you have people that are dying in, in jihad for a radical Islam, or, or it's not really radical, it's normal Islam if you've read the Quran. You have people in all these other religions that give their total life to, to an ideology that they feel is really right. What's the difference between if I go to somebody and say, you know, Jesus Christ, he's the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible, you can bank on it 100% because the Bible destroys all other forms of religion. So if I try to come to a Muslim or to a Mormon or anybody that has a strong uh, belief in their their way of thinking, how am I going to persuade them, if you will, with the truth? It is not me that's going to change their mind but it's me that I can present the truth to them so that the Spirit uh, could convict them or, or not. Prophecy is the answer. You know that there was over 185 specific prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ alone. I'm not talking about his whole life. I'm talking about the birth and the coming of the Messiah. The His life... There would be one that was, we start way back in the garden. You know, you could go way back, and you must know the Bible, because like Walter Martin said, the average Jehovah's Witness can put the average Christian in a spiritual pretzel within 30 seconds. These people, there's a lot of them that study this thing, and study their ways of religion. How do I know? Why is Christianity not a religion, for one thing? So it sets itself apart. We must understand that. It's the only... System of belief in the God of this universe that is not a religion is set apart. Why is that? Prophecy. There is no prophecy in the Quran. There is no prophecy in the, Vindu, uh, the Vedas, the Hindu Vedas. There is no prophecy, the Book of Mormon. There is no prophecy that, that anything of Confucius, Buddha, or any of their other religions in the world have, have uh, proposed. I've been doing some research on humanism. What's that really all about? Well, within humanism, you have Satanism, you have all these other uh, Shintoism, of, of the, the early the Shintoism goes back of the, of the Orient, way back, thousands of years before Christ. So you have all these things, and what makes Christianity different? Prophecy. God says, I'm going to tell you, we've gone over this. I'm going to tell you things that haven't happened yet. And I'm going to tell you things before they happen, so when they happen, you must acknowledge that I am the God of time in history. This is my word. And that's exciting to me. You know, prophecy is... um, They say that conservatively, 28% of the Bible is prophecy. You You know... there's people that sit behind desks and think about and calculate the percentages of these things. I don't know. I just benefit from their labor. You know? That's a lot. Jesus made the statement I tell you these things before, so when it comes to pass, you will know that I am he. I told you these things. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament. That is in the pattern of the Old Testament as far as prophetic utterance is what they call the Olivet of it discourse, Matthew 24 and 25 and so forth. Chronologically in order, Jesus said what's going to happen in the time of Donald prior to his return, but during that time of his return, what's it going to be like? What are the signs going to be? You know? He gave us a good indication, one of Lot and one of Noah. We won't get into that tonight. We don't have time. But this is where we must know. Do you know the Bible? Do you know prophecy? And I'm also speaking that we, uh, we've had a great uh, interest about this on the Internet. We've had a lot of people that have contacted me, a couple of my children, uh, following now, and they're, they're getting interested in prophecy and, and, and what, it, what it means. And this, these times of going through these prophets... Have I hope that have given you uh, encouragement, and excitement as well? And because this is the Bible, you know, it's not the, it's not the Old Testament; it's the Older Testament. It's just older in the date, but it's definitely not older in anything. The entirety of the Word of God is true. The whole Word of God is settled in the heavens. So we must understand that God is speaking um, outside of time, telling us what's going to happen in time, what's His program going to happen. You know, it's so easy for Satan to twist things around. I have a a wonderful man that that I used to get a lot from um, for years and years. A guy who knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. How do you become a pederist? Which basically says, what it means is, things have already accomplished, already been done. Basically what a pederist is, is saying that most prophecy, in fact, all of prophecy, has been already accomplished. That when the when Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple was destroyed in seventy A.D. the Jews were scattered all throughout. That was it. <laughs> These are intelligent people, folks. That proves that the Bible is spiritual. It's not. It's not a textbook you can just learn and 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 walk. It's a spiritual work. Christianity should only be used in a religious context, only for comparison to other things. The religion has no bounds in Christianity. In fact, a religious concept in the Bible is always a negative connotation. We don't get a religion when we come to Jesus, we get a new life. We don't get religion when we come to Christ, we get forgiveness of sins. We get a position. We get to know the God of creation that created you and made you and sustains you. Um, you know, as we've been going through these prophets, I noticed that, for me, it excites me more and more and more to contemplate that Jesus Christ's return is very near. One of the ways I know how near it is, is Israel. in the, the understanding of what's going to happen in Israel. You know, the tribulation period is for the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, our, our Israel is a center. Yes, we're going to have that campaign of Armageddon, which is a campaign, I think we all agree. Um, it's the armies of the world coming together, not only in, in the culmination of, of military hatred, but hatred of they, Satan knows, we talked about this last week, this is marvelous. I hope, I hope you get encouraged here. Satan knows that he must get rid of the Jews. Because through them, God is going to fulfill his word. And if God fulfills his word, that's his demise. That's why in Revelation 12, it's so important to understand that that, that Satan is kicked out of, of heaven. And the Bible says that, woe to the heavens and the earth because he's coming down with great wrath because he knows his time is short. And we see that it's called the time of Jacob's trouble because the last three and a half years, Satan actually enters in and controls personally his Antichrist and his one mission is to annihilate and destroy the Jews. And if God can do, if, if God could could allow Satan to do that, then, it, then uh, we'd all be in trouble, but obviously he does not. And we know the infant beginning because of prophecy. Understand this one thing, that it is Satan's desire and his premise and his whole focus to get rid of the Jews. If he gets rid of the Jews, he proves God false and a liar and destroys the word of God. That's how important this is and so when when uh, when may 14th of 1948 comes and the Jews come back into the land <coughs> satan is furious what happened on may 15th was it egypt and who else leon oh, we're bleeding. We're bleeding war against... against israel there are there are things that are prophetic wonderful uh, utter- utterances in the book of revelation of of Seeing this thing from a spiritual perspective about Satan as as looking at a big dragon waiting to devour this child as soon as he is born. I mean, it is absolutely a battle that Satan, in his mind, must win. And if he doesn't, uh, he knows his demise is is near. He knows his demise is sure. The word of God. Wow. As we talked, we are talking about uh, the book of Haggai. just a short book. Um, We started out by just saying that it was the king, uh, Darius. In fact, let me say something, that that Haggai and Zechariah are prophets to the exile, to the remnant that that are coming out of the seven years' captivity. So you understand these people, if you want to go back to the book of Ezra, you'll really kind of get a resume, if you will, of where we're at now. But the exile, the, the remnant, is coming out. Of Babylon, okay. You have Ezra, which was concerned about the temple, which we're gonna, which we see a little bit of. of Haggai. He was an older, an older man. Zechariah was the younger, but he was primarily trying to encourage people to get the temple rebuilt, and they were lagging not only from opposition but from apathy. And so here's where we're at now. So you can see that that in Nehemiah, he's upset because the walls were burned down and he was all distraught. And he was concerned about building the wall, the security around uh, Jerusalem, if you will. Ezra and his remnant went in and concerned about the temple being rebuilt. So that's what we're looking at in the, the prophet uh, Haggai here. But the thing that I love about the minor prophets, and we understand prophecy, is they're not only prophesying for the time there, but their prophecy also extends uh, to, to the end time. We also we see that uh, the apathy of this people uh, were great. Uh, if you want to look in verse 2, real quick, at chapter 1 Haggai, and this set the groundwork. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. And the prophet says in verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple to lie in ruins? It's important um, that the temple be rebuilt. I would give two reasons why it's important. Number one, it's important because God said so. And number two, uh, it is prophetic at the end times. Because as we will see when we get in the, the latter part of this, this book, and talking about Zechariah, each successive um, temple would exceed the other one. And they were, they were so discouraged because Solomon's temple was desecrated by Nebuchadnezzar. And they came back, and, and they were discouraged and everything else. And yet, we will see today, or tonight, if you go back to Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 47, he's going to give you a glimpse of what this te- this temple will be like in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, think about this for a moment now, folks. If the Jews are no more, or this replacement theology takes the day, or what have you then these prophecies make no sense. Now, can you see the the economy of of International House of Prayer and so forth, these people saying, you know what, this is old. We don't need this anymore. We need new revelation. We need new prophets. We've talked about this a lot before. But we're laying the groundwork of why we stand on the Word of God You know, we used to say, hey, can you preach? You know, my pastor said, you know what, when he was maturing me in the faith, he said, I want to show you how to go out and present Christ out of the Old Testament. Because that's what Paul and and the apostles did. They reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus was Christ in the Old Testament. You know? Can we going back to the prophets and going through the prophets in this timeline that we so have laid out now have we can we prove from the prophets that that yes Israel has a very prophetic very important standing in fact this the last the, the seven year period is a great fulfilling of Daniel's prophecy and I hope we can by the time we get done. So coming into chapter two, you know we've talked about the the uh, we don't want to spiritualize the text. Somebody said one time, well, you know, reading these things, what does it really have to do with me? You know, what, what does reading this stuff really have to do with me? I could, I could. First of all, I'll tell you what it has to do with us. Number one, we learn God's word, and we learn to trust in Him. And remember the two points that we that we uh, have gone through. Uh, we must keep all these precedents together. The first two points of the mind of prophets. Number one, what's the significance of prophecy? Two points I want to point out. There's many more, I'm sure it's the infinite God. But two points that I that want to point out here. Number one, that we can tell prophetic uh, fulfillment is going to be literally exactly the way God fulfilled it in the past. The way God fulfilled all prophecy in the past is a guarantee, literally, of the way that He's going to fulfill it in the future. And number two, prophecy shows us the character of God. He always reveals something of Himself in prophecy. Not only His trustworthiness, not only His holiness and His justice and His righteousness, but, let me say this as a capstone to that, His loving-kindness. So prophecy does have a lot for us. Plus, when we look at the prophets, we can glean, as William McDonald used to say, and I love this saying, spiritual honey." Out of the Old Testament, not spiritualizing the text, but but you know taking that spiritual honey for our lives, uh, and I love the fact that uh, Tim LaHaye, he's gone now, died recently, uh, used to say basically uh, considering yourself about these paneled homes. God is saying, you are so concerned about your own paneled homes, about your own duties, about your own manner of life, and my house lays waste. Well, you know, that has a lot to say about lukewarm and soft Christians, but we're the temple of the living God. Are we concerned about ourselves? Are we concerned about how we speak, what we think about? Are we keeping our body under control? You know, Paul said to Timothy as he was ready to leave, he goes, I know that you're young. I'm going to leave you with with this church at Ephesus. You know, uh, it's going to be tough. You read the book of Revelation. uh, You look at the church at Ephesus. They're doing all these wonderful things. And Jesus said, but this I have against you. You've left your first love. It's a tough area. And what I want you to do is I want you to not only watch your teaching, but I want to watch your life as well. You know, And then that, that scripture that I always say that quotes as Jerry's scripture, I love it, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Always examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Don't you realize this, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? So, like Tim LaHaye was saying, and I'll, I'll quote from him, he says, this fact speaking about... God crying out in the first chapter about you're more concerned about your own cattle houses. Tim LaHaye says this, he says, this fact should be evident in the lives of believers today. We should seriously consider the apathy of our ways and consider that it is of great, great importance to God that it should be of utmost importance that he gets the glory. That's why the Bible says that we should glorify God in our body and our spirits, which are His. We've been bought with a great price. So the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is so predominantly apparent in the Scriptures. He cares about His church. He cares about His remnant. He cares about us. So in chapter 2, we're looking at here the coming of the glory of God's house. In the seventh month on the 21st, of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you? Who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And be strong, all of you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. You know, when, when David was dying, he said he admonished his son, Be strong, be a man do the work that God is going to do and complete it. He's talking about the temple. You know, he gathered all the uh, materials for the temple, but God had told David, you're not going to build it for me, because you're a man of bloodshed, but your son will. And one of the last admonitions, if you will, of David to his son is be strong. You know, develop character. Do the work of God. And we see it here. You know, everybody needs encouragement. I think one of the things that I love about this ministry the most is we stress the fact of of character, being strong. Look at your lives, you know. Be transparent. If you need to repent, if you get sin in your life, by all means repent. I said, Look at this. Is this this nothing in your eyes? He says, Go to work in verse 4 because I'm going to be with you. Let me read down a little bit. According to the word, verse 5, that I have. Covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt so my spirit remains among you do not fear for thus says the Lord of hosts once more as it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth the sea and dry land by the way that's in the book of Hebrews we'll be getting to that verse 7 I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory says the Lord of hosts The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. You know, when when God gives a promise, He's going to keep it. And right here, what he's saying, he said that this temple is important. Do the work. But I'm telling you the truth by my word. There is one coming in the latter days, in the latter times, that is going to be so glorious, that it's going to make this one look the way you must be discouraged in the way this looks now. There's going to be one that's going to come in the glory of the Lord, and he himself is going to be in it. I'm telling these things. I coming in with you when you brought out of Egypt. I, I held you on eagle's wings. I kept you all through the dispensations. I told you in advance that you're going to go to a 70-year captivity. And I prophesied in there of the glories to follow, and I brought you out. Let me tell you, folks, when he brings out the remnant, they're always brought out, having been disciplined, having been cleansed having been mature, if you will. And that's exactly what he's doing now. We can go back to the Apostle Peter that says, judgment must begin in the house of God. And if it begin at us, what's going to be the outcome of them that don't believe the gospel? Right now, he's preparing his bride. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You know, we back in Deuteronomy 30, in the third verse, it says that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all nations from where the Lord your God has scattered you. You know, when we see this, We see a prophecy that's fulfilled far and near. Yes, He did gather them in. But what happened when when Jesus was crucified? See, here's here's a a unique understanding of prophecy. He brought them back into the land. They're in the land now. What happened? We can't make sense of what happened until we go back to the book of Daniel and so forth and see that the Messiah must come, and the Messiah must have been cut off for this time period to be enacted. There's a, there's the, messiah's the Messiah is cut off, the Jews are dispersed, just like Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere. But we also see in the end times that God is bringing, this is the farther fulfillment, God is bringing them back again to the land. When they're established in the land and the church is caught away, that ends the church age. Acts chapter 15, and it starts God's timetable again with the Jews. Once the church is caught away, the saints are caught away and the church is caught away, it opens up God's timing again to fulfill the 70th week of Daniel. Thus, even here, he's saying, I know you look at the, at the temple now, and I know you're discouraged, because it had nothing like the previous glory, but yet there's one coming, there's a temple coming, that is going to exceed and make this what is nothing as well. Take courage. <clears throat> Jesus is coming back. Verse 6, chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while that it will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Verse 7, And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now to understand this, we can also see this in Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to go there real quick, find a, You know, just flip over there real quick, keep your finger there. Hebrews chapter 12, Let's start at verse 25 to keep this in context. Hebrews 12, 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Verse 26, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Verse 27, now this once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And he goes on and describes, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This must be in the future. This must be on the prophetic line that prophets have so much talked about. And it's coming. But let me preface all this before we go. I cannot get far in studying this Word of God with coming back to know that all this is going to come to fruition in this prophetic fulfillment, and we are going to be following Christ as He comes back to this earth. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know, folks. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. But you can't, you know, you have you have Revelation chapter four. I can't wait till we get in the book of Revelation again. have Revelation chapter four. And and you know, come up hither, I'll show you these things that must take place soon. From chapter four, verse one, all the way through chapter nineteen, verse eleven, you don't you don't hear the church. It's concerned about Israel, the tribulation period, and so forth, and the rise of the Antichrist, and what's going to happen in these end times. But then you get to chapter 19, and something happens. In verse 11, it says, And then the veneer, the, the, the windows of heaven, opened. And I saw him coming down on a white horse. And the armies of heaven have fallen. How do we know who the armies of heaven are? With the understanding, clothed of white, linen, bright, clean, and true. These are the saints, as you see in other parts of Revelation. There's no doubt about it. You and I must have gotten up there somehow, and God does not speak about a ping-pong effect. We're not going to be raised up and go right back down. We're not going to be caught up in the middle as he's coming down. We have to understand prophetic scripture stating that the church will be taken away, thus ending the church age, and we see this prophetically talked about with James in, in the 15th chapter of Acts when he said, he quotes Amos when he says that right now God's calling a people himself out of the Gentiles. So we get the rapture of the church of the catching away of the saints, ends the church age, and God is starting his 70th week, just as Daniel prophesied. But the fact is that we're coming back with him. So the more we understand prophecy now, I'm convinced The more we understand it now, the more exciting that will be. Can you imagine that? If we're saturated with the Word of God and what's going to happen, and we understand this prophetic timeline through the Word of God, can you imagine coming back with them and seeing these things fulfilled? It is exciting to me. And I am absolutely convinced that is part of the reason why the the writer of the book of Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active. It is alive. These things are happening now, and they're going to happen. God, right now, as we speak, is working to this fulfillment. That is amazing. He says again in verse 6, Once more I will shake heaven and earth, and sea and dry land. Look at verse 7, And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord that's a promise now there was I noticed as I was looking at verse seven there's a some people think that uh, that the desire of all nations is christ i tend to I tend to have more of that understanding myself, but some people say the desire of all nations is is the actual blessing of the temple itself of the the wonderful Uh, things that will be flowing into the temple itself. Either way, either way, the shaking of this nation goes a lot further than the Persian Empire that we're talking about here. It goes again to the Tribulation period and the coming kingdom we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, followed by the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want... If, if you if if you don't want um, I got another Bible here, so forgive me if it takes me just a second too longer. But turn to um, uh, Matthew chapter twenty four, real quick. Like I said, if not, if you're taking notes, that's fine too. But Matthew twenty four, twenty nine, and thirty. I just want to go through real quick. This shaking of all nations. It's going to be followed by the glorious return of Jesus Christ on, on Matthew 24, which is, which is what they call all of a discourse, or the, the prophetic timeline that Jesus lays out, to, because he answered simple questions. Simple questions from the, from the disciples. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. But look at... Uh, I get excited about these things, wow. The 29th verse he says Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days and by the way if you go to the verse before excuse me verse 28 that's a peculiar saying because Armageddon will be taking place wherever the carcass is there the eagles will gather together it's very interesting Verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I don't have to remind you that we will be with him. We will be coming with Him. And in this splendor, and surrounded by myriad of angels and the flame of His holiness, we will be coming back with Him as He executes this wonderful promise. He says, I will be the desire of all nations. I will fill this temple with glory. The desire of all nations. Wow. And it was an interesting thing about this desire of all nations in Malachi chapter 3 verse one and it's interesting to note that in Malachi the last prophet okay they say that after this prophet there was a four hundred or so period of, of silent years and what that means is is silent that there was no prophetic voice that connected basically uh, Malachi to uh the beginning of, of the ministry, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ, save John the Baptist. But look at Malachi 1 real quick. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, suddenly come to his temple is nowhere quoted in the New Testament. And I believe there's a reason for that. That there's a prophetic time period that a lot of times prophets will see the coming of christ and dying and and you know they will bypass that valley of the church age and they will see him coming into his temple and the bible says that they were perplexed about these things and even even the religious leaders at that time even some of the apostles thought that jesus was going to usher in that kingdom age now when he was there And I think a lot of them were disappointed that this Messiah that was supposed to alleviate the oppression of the Roman rule and set up his kingdom was crucified. And I think a lot of them, uh, well, the religious leaders wagged their tongue and they, they laughed at him. Because they had a view of the Messiah as coming into his temple and making all things new. But there had to come, Jesus said, that... O oh, foolish ones and slow in heart, believe that all that the prophets have spoken ought not Christ to have suffered and then enter into his glory. And beginning with the prophets, the Psalms, and Moses, he says in the upper room, he spoke to them the things concerning himself. He opened their eyes. You know, when this, this picture that he suddenly comes to his temple... Taken out of Habakkuk 2.20, Schofield writes, This is one of judgment, not of grace. We have to understand that the Old Testament prophets, again, blended these two events of Messiah in one horizon. But in the church age, as we see the signs of of the the prophetic uh, coming at hand, number one, let me say these things before we get done with this book of Malachi. Jesus said that the number one sign that will be here is spiritual deception. Think about that for a moment. It's not just somebody coming in here and saying, well, you know, I got a revelation from God the other day, and Jesus really wasn't born a virgin. And by the way, there many roads to heaven. He just kind of paved the way. And, uh, you know, I, I've been studying my Bible really hard, and I realized that, um, well, Israel... I just don't see them in the prophetic view anymore. I think they're done with, and and uh, you know this has happened. This is not just a blatant thing. This is a deception that is going into the church and it's lulling the church to sleep. This causing this effect that Jesus talked about to the church at Ephesus, so to speak, that they're doing everything outwardly fine. They're doctrinally set. They're doing everything outwardly fine, but what have they done? They left their first love. They don't have that intimate burning desire and the love to follow Christ. We've looked at that passage in Jeremiah 2 where God says, I remember when you were tender and you followed me through the wilderness and the land that was not sown. You were holiness to the Lord. And we get glimpses of things. Or then we go to the Laodicean church that they thought they had need of nothing. But Jesus said, Don't you understand that you poor, miserable, blind, and naked False teaching, deception is going to come in. Look around. Sometimes I think we need to get our head out of the sand and see what's going on spiritually in the world around us. Is this not being fulfilled as we speak? There is spiritual deception everywhere. Yes, in Brookings too. I talk to people all the time. Like I was saying, that gentleman I talked to the other day. I'm not going to tell you what church he's been going to for years. I'm not going to tell you who he is. But I will tell you, it really saddened me. There are so many people out there that don't feel that they have to have a keen sense of understanding of God's Word. Well, let me tell you the more we get to understand God's Word and allow it to get into us, the more affectionately does it this work in us. And what do we do? We fall in love with the living Word who is represented so eloquently in the living, in the written Word. Spiritual deception. <clears throat> I tell you what, there's not much more of a spiritual deception today than saying that God has done with Israel. Oh, yeah, we, we are so astute. If somebody came up to you and, and wanted to gripe about the virgin birth or denounce so many carnal uh, fundamental uh, doctrines, yeah, we're astute in that. We should be, to be able to refute that easily. But can you refute the guy that comes in and says that God has done with Israel? He is now concerned with what they call the New Israel, which is the church. They rejected their Messiah, and God will have nothing to do with it. Number one, that has just blown my two points of understanding prophecy. Number one, God tells the end from the beginning, so we might know what would happen. And number two, is that God? Is that God's character? He must have lied to Isaiah when he says, Do I bring to the birth canal and leave it there? (laughs) When I bring the birth canal, it gets birthed. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God is a delivering God. We've gone over this. By the time, hopefully, we get through Malachi, we will know that prophecy is, is a stupendous way of looking at the Word of God. Wow. Malachi lord there and prophesies john the baptist he also prophesies he will suddenly come into his temple he is a covenant keeping god let me throw this into you before there's a lot of different things tonight i hope i'm not getting off on on too many different things but i just have so much to say we're nearing the end of our study of the prophets we have a few to go Zechariah, we're going to be mainly concerned of the latter part of that prophecy about Jesus Christ coming back. What does that mean? But when we sit there and we look at prophecy, do you know that you and I are 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 full of that prophecy? We're a fulfillment of that new covenant. If God is through with Israel, and I want I want us to be able to because those that 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 whole idea is becoming more and more in the church. In fact, a lot of churches, you know, check it out. Don't take my word for it, okay? A lot of churches even here in a small town of Brookings don't teach prophecy. They don't even concern themselves with Israel. But let me tell you one thing. You go to uh, the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, we look at it tremendously. That's where we can see the, the new covenant that was originally given to Israel. Why does he repeat that for our sakes in the new covenant? And why are we in it? in Hebrews chapter 8 and so forth, because God is setting a precedent. And he uses this phenomenon by saying, if Israel can cease before me, and remember, this is my covenant that I made with Israel. The same one, by the way, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 11, that you sprang out of, because the root supports you. I don't support the root. So this new covenant is of amazing importance. So he says in 31st chapter of Jeremiah, after explaining what the new covenant was all about, he says, if you can take Israel out of the picture, first of all, you have to do this. You have to cause the sun not to shine anymore. You have to take the stars out of the constellation. You have to do all these phenomenal things. And by the way, you're going to have to measure earth and, and discover the great depths of all my creation. If you can do that, only then will Israel stop being a nation before me Forever. Now, what does that teach us about prophecy? Number one, that God's going to fulfill what he did in the end, where he, he, yeah, he let them go into captivity, but he always rescued them. Yet he had their temple destroyed, but he always allowed the remnant to come back in not only building it for his glory, but for a future understanding that God doesn't forget his people. So if we understand that, what does that do for us? We know that God's going to fulfill His prophecy, and we know that God is going to be absolutely faithful to us because He's faithful to Israel. He made promises. And people go, well, that was to Israel. God doesn't make any promises to me. Yes, He does. And I'll let you do the homework, but I'll give you a starting point. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He has begun a good work, and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the covenant I made with Israel. If you can take the stars out of the sky and cause the sea to quit having waves and take the sun out of the sky, only then can Israel cease to being a nation before me. Can you start seeing the correlation? Our God's a delivering God. What He starts, He finishes. We need to understand it. That. That's what prophecy teaches. No wonder people don't know. Well, wait a minute. Am I, am, am I an Arminius that says that that I can lose my salvation? Well, wait a minute, am I a Calvinist and say, well, I might be one of the elect. If I'm one of the elect, I will never lose my salvation. But I don't know if I'm one of the elect. What? Let's get our thinking straight and learn the character of our God. That's what the prophets were there for. And by the way, the prophecies that concerning the resurrection of Christ... Sealed my confidence of my eternal home. Because I know I will be in heaven because my Lord is there. Fulfill prophecy. He is there, and I will be there. That's encouraging. Wow. Let's, let's go on here. Verse 8 to chapter 2. The silver is mine. The gold is mine," says the Lord of Hosts. Everything is His. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former," says the Lord of Hosts. And in this place I will give peace," says the Lord of Hosts. You know that's going to be one of the things of the first year, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This, this Antichrist will come and give them a sense of false peace and false security. You can't go very far in Zechariah. You can see Zechariah chapter 33 and 34, uh, talking about the watchman, 33 and 34 about the absolute peace that Christ will come, and Christ himself will be within this temple. Christ himself will bring them back to his land, and he will cause them to lie down in peace and safety from all their enemies. These are direct fulfillments or direct prophecies that will be filled. He says in verse 9, the glory of this temple. Again, this is the temple described in detail in Ezekiel's chapter 40 through 47. It's in verse 10 on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests concerning the law. Saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, Verse 14, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. So is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. It's not what we do, it's who we are. It's not the ceremonial regimen that we keep and think that that's satisfying, because people do that today to satisfy their burning conscience. Man, by his own nature, is religious. But if you put a law onto that as well, you doubly condemn yourself. Paul says sin is defined and is brought to fruition because of the law. But if I do everything according to my conscience and yet on the inside I am unclean, it's like what Jesus said. You see see these things out there? They're beautiful, aren't they? Every time I read that, I think Arlington Cemetery. You know, I really do. They're, They're white, they're beautiful. He says, But you're like that. You're white and you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of extortion, you're full of greed, wickedness, and everything else. You know, that's the very thing that the Apostle Paul realized about himself in Philippians chapter 3. And he says, all of that I count but rubbish. that <laughs> I may gain Christ. I not, want, I not want the outside clean also. I want the inside clean. And we cannot have the inside clean, but nothing other than a new birth. <clears throat> not a reformation, not, not a patch-up job, not religious, but a new birth. And that's what we're talking about here. 15, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, And now carefully consider from this day forward. For before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. <clears throat> Since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephodos, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat and drew out fifty baths from the press, there was but twenty. I struck you with the plight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Are we a holy people under the Lord to be used at his disposal? Are we available? You know, Ian Thomas said one of the, said something that forever changed the way I think about spirituality. He said, true spirituality is being made available to God. You want to be spiritual? You want to you see people saved and do the works of God and the Word of God? Be available. When he says, I want you to do this, don't make some excuse. Because if you've got a busy schedule and he says he wants to do something, he's going to take care of your busy schedule. We're learning that in a dramatic way right now about my folks and our our move, our change of life because of them. One thing keeps happening after another. Don't you think the Lord knows that? Am I available? Are we still being pliable? Are we saying, you don't understand, Lord? Yes, He does. True spirituality is being made available to God. He did all these things to get their attention, yet they won't turn to him. Look at verse 18. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant the son of Shithiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Before I I, I finish this, I just want to say that we, we need to be a people not only of integrity, but of diligence. We need to diligently study the word of God. Give me two more minutes. You know, he says in verse 22, look at that. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I want to just lift two passages. I'm not going to read the second. I'm going to reference this one because we've read the second too many times. I want want you to read it for yourself. I read it every day. It is my glorious future of coming back with our Lord. But real quick, turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Just back a little bit. Isaiah chapter 63 I call Isaiah to me the father of all prophets. See this uh, there's just some amazing revelation here. We're gonna read just the first six verses. Now remember, God is saying, Through through this prophet, again, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I'll destroy the Gentile kingdoms, I will overthrow them. Look at uh, Isaiah sixty three, verse one He who is this who comes from Edom? with dyed garments from Bezrah, this one who is glorious in his peril, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save, why is your peril red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Verse 4 for the day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. Listen to that. The vengeance is in his heart. The year of his redeemed has come. This is not a prophecy about the church. This is a prophecy about the last days. And we we see so much resemblance and let's go on. This is wonderful. Verse five I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered, and there was no one to uphold, therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my own fury it sustained me. Now God says that earlier the prophet, but he leaves one thing out. He says my own brought own arm brought salvation to me, and my righteousness it sustained me. In this declaration the Lord says, My own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down verse six the peoples of my anger and made them drunk in my fury. And brought down their strength to the earth. Now, my friends, can can compare that with Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, down through the 21st verse. Read how he's going to trample the winepress of the fierceness of God Almighty, and he's going to destroy all of the armies of the earth and Armageddon by the sword, by the word of God. He's not going to use weapons. He's powerful. This God that spoke in the universe, sprang into existence, has no problem with the word destroying the rebellion of the world and saving his people, Israel. You want to you have a God that you can fall all in love with? There's your God right there. He is absolutely wonderful. We don't have time tonight, but Zerubbabel is a representative of the Davidic dynasty, if you will, of David's promises. But we see him in Ezra chapter 2. We also see him in Matthew chapter 1, in that wonderful genealogy, of which David was promised an eternal place on the throne. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would always have a light burning on the throne of Israel. I don't have time to go through the Word of God explaining how God is so intricately involved with his people. And as the Gentiles come in, think about this as the Gentiles come in through the catching away of the saints, our time is in the Father's house. Israel's time is with God's dealing with his people and with the the end of this age. This is all wonderfully and carefully laid out in the prophets. It's exciting. We'll start on Zechariah next week. Fourteen chapters. uh, The last five chapters are are primarily concerned with the coming of Jesus Christ and uh Wow, it is going to be a wonderful time. Mike, do you want to pray, please? Thank you, Father, for being long-suffering with us when we're handling our own houses and not putting our attention on your kingdom. Uh, I want to thank you for the outcome of the election, Lord. There's a sense of relief. Uh, I know your word says that the righteous. Rule that people rejoice. and I don't know necessarily that the righteous will be ruling, but less righteous seems to have been kept out. But anyway, uh, we trust in you because we know that your righteous kingdom is going to come. You're going to rule and reign. And and allow us to be a part of that kingdom. Amen. You, Lord Jesus, said that you are true food and true drink, that when we come to you and abide in you, we will never hunger, we will never thirst. Cause our dull hearts to get the correlation here, to understand that you're speaking to us because you love us. And you want to give us life, abundant life, that we may live the life that we have. We possess eternal life now. We are just waiting for our Lord to come back and, 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 and get us. Receive us unto himself. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You Believe in God, believe also in me. In my heart and my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Yet I go away and prepare a place for you. And if I go away I will come back and receive you unto myself, and that where I am, there you will be also. Paul says that same thing in First Thessalonians chapter four, sixteen through eighteen. And he said, ended that and said, Comfort one another with these words. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. I wanted to get divorced, but she felt she couldn't get a divorce because I'm Catholic. Is that a godly marriage? I know people that won't get divorced and they want to get divorced because they but they want to stay together and endure one another because of property reasons. Is that a godly marriage? These people claim no God Husbands let's. Let's commit even today of showing our wives the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the word that uh, we don't need to be afraid of. We don't need to be afraid of falling short in our position as a husband and wife. What we need to do is to heed the word of God and correct through the power of the Spirit our position as a husband or wife. Because this is godly living. This is what Peter is putting down. And I thank You, Lord, that this epistle, starting out with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, how You elected us, made us Your own, and that You bore our sins on Your body on the tree, that we may live to righteousness and die to sins. By stripes we are healed, that our godliness and our hope will be surrounded by completely hoping to the end these things in our life. And all of our hope centers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love when you say, Lord Jesus, to us that you didn't leave us alone. If I go away, I will not leave you alone as orphans. I will come to you. And as I live, you will live also. Those are powerful, life-changing words. Father, I thank you for the marriages here. Whether they're absolutely strong or whether they're struggling, there is an opportunity that we can be strengthened thereby. That Christ not only be lived out on the streets where our closest Mate or closest people maybe can't see, but our life can be lived in the home where they can see. We're all to see. I thank you for your life-changing truth. I thank you for the wonderfulness and your indescribable gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I ask it, Lord. Amen. I